0: This is Truth, Justice, and Hope, the podcast that explores the modern era of Superman comics from a humanist perspective and examines real life through the lens of a Superman fan. I'm Grant Richter, and this is episode 83. (laughs) Truth and justice, my friends, and welcome back to the show. This episode, we're going to be talking about Action Comics number 996, Superman number 40, not necessarily in that order, and Doomsday Clock number 3. And normally, this is where I would say, but as usual, I have some thoughts from here at the Fortress of Solitude, but I'm going to switch things up a little bit this week. As you guys know, if you've been listening to the show for some time, I usually use some kind of Superman reference as a segue to whatever it is I want to talk about for the Fortress. Whether it be politics, or just ethics, or just good manners, or whatever. Um, But one of this week's episodes has the perfect lead-in to what I'm going to talk about. So I'm going to actually sandwich the Fortress segment in between the first comic book segment, and the second comic book segment. And so with that being said, and I'm sure as I go through this first issue, you'll go, oh, okay, I have a pretty good idea what Grant's going to talk about this week. Let's jump into Superman number 40. Now, this will mean that I'm taking the book slightly out of publication order, but it doesn't really matter because the two books that I'm flip-flopping don't really impact each other in any way, shape, or form. But again, we're going to start with Superman number 40, which was cover dated February 7th, 2018. This episode is written by James Robinson, mostly of Starman fan fame. Excuse me. Um, I am a Starman fan. He is of Starman fame. Doug Mankey, one of my favorite pencilers, is the penciler for this issue. Jaime Mendoza and Scott Hanna are the inkers, with Will Quintana on colors and Rob Lee on the letters. Victor Bondanovic with Mike Spencer do the main cover and John Boy Myers do the variant. The main cover, um, I honestly would not have known that this was Bogdanovic because I can usually tell a Bogdanovic work by the faces um, because uh, the character's backs are to the camera. But we have uh, an image of Clark and John in their Superman and Superboy suits respectively standing in the fortress watching a holographic display of the destruction of Krypton and the John Boy Myers variant is of Clark and John both with breathing apparatuses on their face uh, respectively flying and jumping through an asteroid field and it's I I love this cover. It is great. I am really, really enjoying John Bowie Myers covers. I don't know if I would want to see a whole book by John Bowie Myers, maybe on something like super sons, which has that kind of, um, almost anime energy to it. Anyway, uh, Myers's work is, does feel a little anime inspired to me, but it's, it's delightful. It's, it's a really cute cover. Um, Now, recently on, in Action Comics, Superman has traveled back in time to try to witness the last days of Krypton before it exploded, and um, we'll talk more about that when we get back over to Action Comics in a little bit, but we open uh, with... Uh, Clark standing in the fortress of solitude um and I normally say you know recently in this book, but i don 't think a whole lot that 's recently happened on this in this particular book is going to affect what 's going on in this story um but we open again with with Clark in the fortress, and he 's looking for john and he's he he's you know have you got gotten lost again and then John just kind of jumps down from out of nowhere and says, "No way, I was exploring and i' got lost in my ho my head it's so cool here." And he is super excited about his Kryptonian heritage because look at all this cool stuff. And and uh, there's a fun little bit where Clark is saying, do you know what today's date is? And John's like, yeah, it's Thursday, which means it's apple pie and ice cream for dessert day. And Clark's like, no. And John says, does that mean that you got me the tickets for the movie, I, the comedy I wanted to see about a monkey that solves crimes, and Clark's like, well, it's actually a biopic, and it's about Detective Chimp, and I don't think he'd appreciate being called a monkey, and John's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I'm just messing with you, I know today's the destruction, the anniversary of the destruction of Krypton, he says, our home planet, Clark is very proud of him for that, um, and again, John reiterates how cool it is to have, have it, to have, excuse me, to be a Kryptonian Descendancy, Um, since he's John isn't actually from Krypton, but he identifies it as his father's home planet and therefore his. And he gives on about, yeah, Damien thinks he's so cool because he's got the back cave, but look at all this stuff. And I'm from another planet. And this is rad. And Clark is like, yes, all this stuff is really cool, but let's bring things down to Earth for a minute because when I went back in time, I was able somehow (laughs) to capture a holographic uh, image of the destruction of Krypton. And he's like, look, this is serious and this may be upsetting. And if you don't think you can handle it, I understand, but I think it's important for you to see this. And John's like, okay, I'm a big boy. I can totally handle it. And after they watched the, the holographic destruction, John is, kind of flabbergasted he's like wow he's, he's thinking about the scope of how many billions of lives that was and you know, the two of them are all that's left except for crypto and Kara and zod and ursa and their son um so you know they're they're kind of poking at how or the at least the way i read it was they're kind of poking fun of how in the post-crisis to Infinite Crisis era, Clark literally was the only survivor of Krypton and that characters who were introduced uh, to be analogs to uh, pre-crisis Kryptonians have other origins. And then slowly building up to Infinite Crisis, more and more Kryptonians were revealed, beginning with both uh, Supergirl and Crypto and then the rest is kind of un, like exploding after, <laughs> after infinite crisis. But as they're talking, an alarm goes off and Clark's like, wow, you know, this is some incredible serendipity. It's the anniversary of the destruction of Krypton and our sensors have picked up that the planet Ganymede uh, way out in space is it looks like the planet's gonna blow up. So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna help these people. I'll stop the destruction of their planet if I can. If I can't, I will do my best to get everyone off a planet. I have a plan. You can tell he's really, really thought about this. Um, Because we saw over in Action Comics where even though intellectually Clark knows that going back in time and saving Krypton to destruction would completely screw up the timeline. Like everything, (laughs) everything that Clark has done to save the, you know, save the planet would be undone everything he's done to save the galaxy the universe whatever would be undone um it might mean the actual destruction of the universe but on an emotional level he can't not help people when they need help so you know clark is like well if i could go back and save my home planet how would i do it um and john's like oh i want to go too and clark is like no 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 you are you're way too young for this it's way too dangerous and um and John says, John tries to say, look, it's a sign. You know, this planet fixing to explode. Uh that's how you can tell I've spent a lot of time in the south, as I say, fixing. Fitna. Um, fitna explode. Um, it, it, on the day that Krypton blew up, it's a sign. And Clark's like, Really? A sign from who? And John's like, um, a sign from Rao. And Clark goes, Really, are are you really going there? But he's like, Okay, fine, don't tell your mom. And the next scene is a splash page of uh Clark wearing a breathing apparatus, flying out into space, John wearing a breathing apparatus and goggles, and having this kind of translucent um, sheath around his body from the neck down. And I, I honestly didn't see the, the transparent sheath the first time I looked at this. John kind of sort of looks like he's riding on Clark's back. He kind of sort of doesn't. He looks like he's kind of floating right above Clark's back and just barely holding on with his legs. It's a really cute, really fun uh, splash page. And as they fly through all these nebula. Uh, Clark talks about how the the suit that he's wearing will protect him from the rigors of space because John isn't old enough and durable enough to handle them. It'll help him handle the atmosphere of planet Ganymede. Um, well, let me make sure I'm saying that right. Because I... That... Uh, Ga- Gallimane, excuse me, not Ganymede. My brain saw something and translated it into Ganymede. Galamine is what it's called, Um, and you know the the oxygen masks are, are a fantastic, fantastic callback to the breathing apparatus that Clark had to wear during the Exile story arc, which took place in 2000. I'm sorry, not 2088. That would be some serious catching up for me to do. 1988 and 1989. And by the way if you would like to hear me talk about that story and you're not already a patron i talked about it in a great amount of detail over on the patreon um that currently is available to subscribers only even though i will be making the first episode breaking it down cuz i do one uh starting with that story arc i believe i started breaking the uh the issues down in one episode per uh piece I will make that the first issue of that available to free-level subscribers very soon. So, again, if you want to hear me talk about that, subscribe over to Patreon. It is a a paid subscriber exclusive reward. I don't know what the goggles are there for. The goggles are just cool and fun. Um, But they get to the planet, and they fly down to it, and it turns out to be a water planet. It's covered in purple water. They fly down and the sentient species on this planet look a lot like seahorses. They are very much evolved seahorses and they have some very cool organic looking technology. And um, as they're doing this, we're getting a voiceover from Clark from where John asks him, what's the plan? Uh, And Clark says, I usually go along these lines, meet the natives who, once they realize why they're here, will greet us warmly, I expect. They'll be fascinated with our powers, too. They'll just have a lot of questions. Anyway, the natives will alert the local authorities, or whatever passes for that on this world, who will escort us up to the planet's leaders Uh, Then I tell them who I am. So we see Clark meeting with these priests, uh, the High Priest of Gallimane. And, his two sub, and the priest's two subordinates. And Clark says, I come in peace but with an offer of assistance and whatever it takes to save your planet, whose destruction I know is imminent. I realize this is a lot to take in, but I'm a being of great power, superpower. And more importantly, I have possible solutions to your plight due to my own planet suffering the same fate many years ago. In short, if we work as one, I'm certain we can save this world. And the high priest says, leave now before you two are destroyed. And Clark says, what? And the high priest. And it's the way these guys are designed, these aliens, they they look like seahorses, but they have these long noses. And the priests, they wear these masks that cover the lower half of their faces and their noses. And there's these kind of like seaweed leaves that stick out from the side of it. It reminds me a lot of the Guillermo del Toro Netflix Pinocchio movie that came out last year. I think it is really intense. Um, but the priest says in the simplest terms, we are a race of deep and abiding faith in our Lord God. Dermet, the creator of all things. If it is his will uh, that this orb and we, it's people perish, then we do not wish to be saved. And Superman says that you cannot be serious. That is crazy. And the priest says "That the." period, between each word. That is what we believe. Furthermore, if you were of this race, your words equating our faith with madness would be heresy and you would face destruction. Instead, we bid you simply go, leave us to die by the light of his divine grace. And Clark thinks about it and says, no, that, no, I do not accept that. You cannot speak for everyone here. Um, and the priest says, oh, really? This is your first time to our planet. You understand us so well. And he says, this is the way of Dermet. And the priest, you know, and recite next to him, Dermet. And the priest says, you were foretold by our seers, the monster who will come and try to change us, rule us, deny us our faith. And by those seers alerting us, we were able to prepare. And Superman and John look up and they are surrounded by the beings of this planet and the high priest says and we will take your superpowers so you and your he calls them a par i guess that is their their racist term for a child will die along with us so speaks the well of Dermet. and then the people all began chanting Dermet, Dermet. and clark clark is a little cocky in this issue like coming to this point it's like hello i am here to save you i am very powerful and i'm sure you will greet me warmly but in response to the high priest threat he's like look do you think you can depower me i've scanned your planet you don't have kryptonite or a red sun so once you've got magic you you can't hurt me and the priest says magic and unpredictable energy Nevertheless, akin to miracles and miracles come from faith, the faith of a planet, the faith of its people, of one God and of one mind. So they kind of have like Dungeons Dungeons and Dragons cleric magic. They have divine magic that comes from their deity, who I guess in this cosmology is a real probable other dimensional being and so the the masses swarm clark and john who can already feel their powers fading they fight back and they swim away they can't fly out of the water anymore but as they pass kind of a a porthole one of the aliens sticks his head out and says, "Hey, come in here quick and this guy is he's adorned a little differently than the rest there his his garments have a more streamlined look to them they look less like um like most of most of the the people surrounding uh clark and john they look like they're wearing kind of robes and this guy's outfit looks more like a like a science lab coat right and so he he brings them inside he brings them into his ship and he says you know you know i'm you know thank you for taking me up on my offer they would have torn you to pieces Um, and he says, "He he says, perhaps it's the same on your world. How those who claim to be saintly are often the most savage." And Clark says that seems to be a universal truth. Um, and he asked Clark asked this guy, "Why are you different than the others?" He said, "Well, like unlike almost everyone else of my race, I believe in science and not superstition." Um, I guess on his his planet, it's not really superstition; it is like a real quantitative thing you can do, but he believes in science more than magic, I guess. Science more than religion. Um, so, uh, they go fully into the guy's ship. He activates the ship, which emits an electrical charge, which stuns the guards that are going after them. And, uh, the guy says, I have another place, my laboratory farther away as I was about to say, unlike most, unlike most of my race, I'm a man of science. And um, let's see, what was the guy's name? Has he said his name yet? Uh, yeah. His name is Klain K L A I N. And so um, Klain says, "I'm one of the few here hated and reviled, not that it matters now. What matters is the continued existence of my brainless myopic race. So let's go save this world together, shall we? And the final page is a full page splash of Clark and John and Klein and kind of like the cockpit bubble of this big, huge jellyfish meets electrical eel ship kind of, kind of flying through the oceans of his planet. It's a really, really cool image. Um, I like this issue a lot. This is actually my first time reading it or or I should say my first the first time I read it for the show was my first time reading it. Um I dropped off this book at the at the beginning of the last arc, the one that I did not fully cover. The 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 one with the the um Tim Drake of the future. I did not like that story. That turned me off. By then I was just ready to jump ahead to the Bendis run for good or for worse for him getting the trunks back or better in my opinion um and so I I completely missed out that James Robinson wrote this arc and like I said I'm a a big James Robinson fan I like his work on Starman I like his work on Superman during the new Krypton saga uh all kinds of stuff I didn't really I didn't really care for his Justice League of America run but you know Everybody has their highs and has their lows, and I'm sure there are lots of people out there who do think very fondly of it. And of course, with Doug Mankey, I, I I absolutely love his art. I've been a fan of his um, ever since I read uh, Final Crisis: Superman Beyond for the first time. Up until then, I was kind of hit or miss. He his art really turned me off back in the early 2000s. When he and Joe Kelly took over JLA, it went from the psychedelia of Grant Morrison to the very straightforward superheroics of Mark Waid to some very dark stuff under their run. And, of course, Mankey's art really adds to that dark effect. But, yeah, I've become a massive Doug Mankey fan. Uh, It also helps that he... Uh, did the art on my favorite Seven Soldiers miniseries, the Frankenstein uh, Seven Soldier series. So really, really great stuff. Always happy to see him on one of the books that I cover here on the podcast. And that is all there is to say directly about this issue. So after the interstitial, I'll be right back with this episode's Fortress of Solitude segment. Stay tuned. And we're back. And as you could probably guess, based on the subject matter of the issue that we just talked about, I am going to be talking about religion in this segment. And I promise to be gentle. I know that everyone has their beliefs and everyone has the right to their beliefs. And it is not my intention to stomp on those beliefs. Um, but I do want to talk about some aspects. Religion. Now, I, as I've talked about before, I am not religious uh, per se. I do not follow any particular religion. I have my own spiritual beliefs, but whenever I talk about them out loud, it kind of sounds like the the woo nonsense that I often roll my eyes at. So I just don't talk about it. But I'm not. I'm not a full on atheist. But I, I am not a person who subscribes to. A particular religious belief. Now I grew up with religion. My dad's side of the family who were all who immigrated to the US from Germany in the late 1800s. They all lived in this very small town in rural Ohio and they everyone in the same town went to the same Lutheran church and they're all very religious and they're all fairly conservative and I actually like most of that side of my family quite a bit. Uh, there's a couple cousins that I don't really associate with because I don't agree with their stance on things such as uh, gay rights or or vaccines and things like that. So I just you know if I were to ever meet them, I would you know see them. I would you know talk to them socially and cordially. I was avoid certain topics and if they brought them up i would just walk away um like my grandma was a sunday school teacher and whenever i would go spend a few weeks with her during the summer i had to go to church with her and sit through you know go through her sunday school lesson and sit through the 11 to 12 sermon and and i knew right away that christianity was not for me i just it did not resonate with me at all and it made me uncomfortable uh, my mom's side of the family are not as overtly religious, but they did go to church you know, relatively often, um, not every Sunday, as my dad's side of the family did, but it was kind of like a, a ritual that needed to be observed from time to time. Um, and like I said, I'd, it was not something that appealed to me at all from an early age, and by the time i was in high school and i was old enough and big enough to not fear a beating if i said i'm not going then i just stopped going i wasn't going to go and you couldn't make me now that's not to say that religion hasn't played you know more of a part of my life as i got older um, my wife's parents are episcopalian and because they paid for our wedding they insisted that we get married in an Episcopalian church, and so we did and working in a working for a law enforcement agency in a fairly conservative town in the south, it played a reoccurring role in my career um whether even though it's not supposed to because it's a government agency it, it did nonetheless um but that being said, I do not begrudge. Anyone their religious beliefs. You have the right to believe whatever you want to. Um, just because it's not for me doesn't mean it shouldn't be for anybody else. It's that's fine with me. Um, just you know, don't expect me to be, you know, to be prepared. Don't don't expect me to jump on board, but don't expect me to to harass anyone about it either. Now, what does bother me um, is when people use their religion as an excuse to hurt others whether it's physically emotionally socially anything like that and i'm not i'm not specifically talking about christianity here i'm talking about uh people from all almost every religion have done this at some point or another and so you know please understand i'm not picking on any one religion when i say this but people throughout history have used their faith as as an excuse to belittle others, to persecute others. Um, and especially when those religions uh, are proponents of love and forgiveness and acceptance, when the teachings of their religions are subverted to say, well, every other group is not worthy of love and acceptance and respect because they are not the same religion as us, or regardless of what faith they are, because they are they love someone different or they look different or whatever that that I find unacceptable. And what truly baffles me, and this ties in more to to the Superman comic that we just covered, is when people who use their faith as a reason to act against their own self-interest. Now. You know when people use religion as an as an opportunity to act against the well-being of others. Even though I don't agree it with it, I understand the psychology of it. That on some primitive brain level, back when clans and tribes and what have you had to fight over scarcity resources, your group's survival might depend on another group doing without. Um, and that is just kind of a baked in part of human psychology. And so you know, finding excuses to lash out at others will unfortunately always be a part of humanity. But acting against one's own self-interest in the name of religion always confuses me. And I, I don't know how to wrap my brain around that. Um, and we see that in the comic with the with these, this race of, of beings willing to die with their planet because they've decided... That that's their deity's will. Um, we've seen it um, recently with the pandemic, where people said, "I'm not getting the shot because the virus is is God's doing, and if it's God's will that I die, then I guess I'll die." Um, that that confuses me. We see it with climate change, and to a large degree, I haven't seen. I've seen this here and there among the general populace, but usually you see it from politicians saying, "Well, if the Earth is heating up, or you know the oceans are rising, the ice caps are melting, so forth and so on, it's not our fault. It's God's doing. And if it's God's doing, who are we to do anything about it?" Um, and that, and. Like I said, mostly I see that from politicians, but I do see that from people in the general populace too. I I hear about it being preached that, you know, the end times are coming and, you know, that is the maker of the world's doing and who are we to say otherwise. And that I do not understand. I, I do not understand the psychology of it. I guess I've just never been in a place where what I believe calls for me and others like me to suffer um and we we see it even on a smaller scale like with the voting where um there will be people there will be lgbtq people who will vote for a republican candidate because they are of that candidate's faith and even if that candidate says that LGBTQ people don't deserve rights there are st- people who will still vote for them. Women who will vote for Republicans who want to take away a woman's right to reproductive health. Um, People of color who will vote for uh, politicians of faith who who don't believe in equality for for people, regardless of skin color. That truly boggles my mind. And there's no solution to it. Um, But as a species, we as humans should, and again, I'm not saying move, move beyond religion, because it will always be part of human psychology to want to be part of something bigger than you, to, to trust that the universe is not subject to whimsy and, whimsy and happenstance, that there is a, a logic and a solution to things beyond our ability to affect those things. Um, so I'm not saying that we as a species should move past religion, but we as a species, uh, for for our own well-being, should I would hope that at some point we move past the point where we use religion as an excuse to hurt others and to hurt ourselves. And that is all I have to say about this topic for now. So with nothing else to say... Let's go talk about another Superman comic. And we're back with Action Comics 996. Cover dated January 24th, 2018. And this issue is written by Dan Jurgens with art by Will Conrad, a artist who I am not previously familiar with, but did a perfectly fine job on this book. Um, Ivan Nunes is the colorist. Rob Lee is the letterer. Dan Jurgens, Trevor Scott, and Hi-Fi did the main cover. And Dustin Nguyen did the variant. The main cover is of Superman being held aloft by the neck by a man who looks like a younger version of General Zod with the title Son of Zod Unleashed. And the variant is just of Superman in Booster Gold kind of fighting some rubble and cables, I guess, in front of a futuristic city. Um, I've said it before. I've said it before. I I will say it again. I am. Dustin Nguyen does a good job uh, as far as interiors from the work I've seen of his before, but I, I am not a fan of his covers. I'm sorry. But recently in this book, as I said at the beginning of the Superman issue 40 uh, segment, Superman recently went back in time to witness the destruction of Krypton in hopes of gaining more information about whether the man calling himself Mr. Oz is in fact Dorel. Narrator's voice, it is. Um, Superman's presence alone in that era messed with time and created a divergent timeline in which um, the Science Council had believed Jor-El's findings, and Jor-El and Zod were working together to create a fleet to leave Krypton and colonize a new planet. By leaving quickly, (laughs) Superman and Booster erased that timeline. I'm not really sure how that works. Um, It I didn't really think about it at the time Superman arriving at the time. The Superman arrived on Krypton in the past, the change in the timeline was already underway. So I'm not sure how him showing up altered the timeline, but I don't know something, just something about his presence in the past. Just, just bumble messed up time all higgity piggity. They try to get back to the present uh, but were followed by an Eradicator who messed with the time controls. They ended up in the 25th century um, where they Superman helped Booster Gold deal with some issues he has with his parents. His dad was a no-good crook, and his mom thinks Booster is dead, and Superman helped resolve both those issues. From there, they tried to go to the past again. The Eradicator again messed things up. Not the Eradicator, but an Eradicator and they ended up somewhere on a planet that, um, that, that reveres Zod. So we'll let's find out exactly what's going on with that. But first we open with a shot of a carrier plane flying over the government of La Gamba, where Lois Lane's dad, General Sam Lane, has been taken captive. As part of a black ops mission, the government has um, uh, is not acknowledging Sam, Sam's legitimacy in the country. So they're going to let him be executed. But Lois has gained enough information to figure out how to sneak into the country to effect a rescue him themselves. Um, as they're flying over La Gamba, the co-pilot is, says, hey, an alarm's going off. The cargo bay is opening and the pilot's like, I don't hear any alarm going off and neither do you. And the pilot's like, um, yeah, I do. And why have you taken off course? And the the main pilot says, I was a stupid kid when I first served in the general's unit. He made a man a good man out of me. One, good enough not to notice that we just strayed into Lagombin airspace or that our cargo door just happens to be open. And uh, we get Lois's kind of voiceover internal monologue talking about, you know, she's glad that there are some... Uh, some people that are loyal to her dad, who are willing to help her out in this predicament, and uh, she thinks about how, who knows where Clark is, or who know he, who even knows when Clark is, because of this thing he went to go deal with. So she parachutes out of the plane. Um, she you know drops down. She got a helmet. She got the parachute. The whole thing. She's going to jump in and save her dad, all on her own if she has to. And meanwhile, Superman and Booster are on this planet uh, with this big statue of Zod and this little flying robot so that you are welcome to the planet if you are willing to kneel before Zod. Um, this does a lot. This issue jumps a lot back and forth between uh, Lois's adventure and Clark's adventure. So I'm going to stick with the Clark adventure for now and then double back around to Lois's. So, um, the little flying robot identifies this planet as New Krypton. And um, and it talks about how, and, and Skeets talks about how that he can't identify exactly the time. He can't exactly work on the place. Eventually, he figures out that they are about 20 years in the future from the time that Superman is from. And Superman thinks about how After the whole ordeal with the Revenge Squad at the Fortress of Solitude and how Zod's real goal was to rescue his wife and son from the Phantom Zone, the three of them left the planet. Now, I mentioned last episode there was an ad uh, for an arc in Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps with Hal Jordan dealing with the fallout of that. And that that story is about Zod landing on a planet somewhere out in space. It's a habited planet. And saying, this is new Krypton. Uh, I'm in charge now. Nobody's going to do anything about it. I have not finished that arc. Um, judging by this, I, I'm assuming the arc has not wrapped up. I think it's at least a four-issue arc. I'm guessing that... I don't know what happens at the end of that story in Green Lantern. Um, I don't know if Zod gets routed or if the Green Lanterns give him sovereignty or whatever, but at this point in publication, the story hasn't finished. So even if that story in Green Lantern ends with Zod leaving the planet, this story takes place in such a place where time could have diverged to where, um, Zod did maintain control of the planet. And we see, um, We see his wife, Ursa, and their son, Lorzod, on this planet. And if you are a fan of the post-Infinite Crisis era of Superman comics, like I am, you will recognize the name Lorzod, because as here, as then, Lorzod was in fact the son of Zod and Ursa in that continuity however um lore escaped the phantom zone he did not like his parents especially his mom who was openly abusive to him escaped to earth and was adopted by clark and lois under the name of chris kent chris would rather go through some time dilation stuff um not dissimilar to what we're going to see with john coming up in a little while but sim but dissimilar enough but the method you know like we'll see how john gets aged up chris gets aged up very artificially something to do with phantom's own energy or something but he goes from being a 10 year old to being a 20 year old over a few weeks um which gets really messy especially when he gets involved with a 20 year old woman after he ages up and they become the the team of the kryptonian Nightwing and Flamebird, with Chris being the Kryptonian Nightwing, who is later revealed to be the reincarnation of the Kryptonian entity known as Nightwing. I really like that version of Od I really like Chris Kent. Um, I love the idea of a kid from abusive parents who gets adopted by Superman. That is amazing. And that's one of the reasons I like Chris Kent so much. This um, this Od is ostensibly the same person from a different timeline basically. And it makes me sad to see Lorzod here because it, I don't know, with what we're going to see when, after we get through Death Metal, where all of continuity counts, I guess you could bring back Chris Kent, but i the, 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 the presence of Lorzod here makes that very, very difficult without it, without the story coming across extremely convoluted. So a bunch of Eradicator robots show up and attack uh, Superman and Booster. Skeet says that these Eradicator robots did not follow them through the time stream. They, the alloys and materials they're made up appear to be native to the planet, so they're of recent construction. Um, let me flip forward to the Superman stuff. Um, there is a... After Superman and Booster defeat all the Eradicator robots, there is a scene where Booster and Superman are being escorted into the city of New Krypton. Um, And we have this purple skinned race that's native to the planet. And it becomes very apparent that Zod has enslaved this entire race. Um, and we see that Superman's cape has been turned around kind of backwards to where it covers the House of El symbol on his chest. He and Booster are both in handcuffs, and they're being escorted by an Eradicator robot and a little flying robot. We find out that the little flying robot actually has Skeets inside of it. So Skeets is controlling the flying robot and the Eradicator robot. And uh, you know, eventually Superman is like, look, I, I've, I've had enough this this planet has been enslaved by Zod. I'm not putting up with this crap. So after they get deep enough into the city, he breaks the shackles. He cuts loose with his heat vision. Destroys all the the erratic... I'm going to call them Eradicator drones before they are attacked by the Eradicator. Capital E. The one from the first arc of the eponymous Superman title from the Rebirth Era. The one who survived the initial destruction of Krypton and was changed by its energy in the one who is an analog to the Eradicator slash slash last son of Krypton from Reign of the Supermen. Uh, much fighting ensues with Booster fighting the Eradicator drones and Superman fighting the main eradicator themselves before a figure in black moving at super speed runs in, knocks Booster out, punches Superman, hits Superman with some heat vision, and uh, we find out that it is Zod's son, Lor Zod. Uh, He says, your judge, jury, and executioner as he stands over an unconscious Superman. And here we see that Lor is, looks like he's in his 20s or maybe very early 30s. He has long black hair and a goatee. He looks a lot like a younger version of General Zod. And I am ashamed to to admit that I do not know the first half of General Zod's name. I'm sure if I were to get my phone out and consult with Kelex, he could tell me in a heartbeat, but I, I'm just going to let it sit with that and just let you guys know that my knowledge of, of Kryptonian lore is not complete. But as this is going on, Uh, Let's come back over to Lois' story in La Gamba, where she has landed. She has parachuted down onto a beach. She has been met with a contact there named Hamby, who is a would-be journalist in La Gamba. Only journalism has been outlawed as as the government wants to control all narratives uh, going through and out of the country. And Hamby is going to take... Lois to another contact deeper into the country who will help her further along. And we see that John is kind of hovering slash flying through the trees above her. It looks like he's more like floating and using the trees to pull himself along, which is a pretty neat show of the progression of his powers. Once Lois is in the city, she meets with a woman named Borana who runs an orphanage. She runs a series of orphanages for helping uh, refugee children whose parents have been uh, killed by all the fighting in this country. And she says that the government does not condone her actions or the actions of those who, who work with her, but they don't forbid it either. So uh um sorry what's her name Borana gives Lois very an outfit very much like a hijab it covers Lois's entire body and most of her face they are met with some soldiers who demand paperwork because they're out after curfew and and um and the guards aren't having it you know Borana's like you know I'm sorry we're out late taking care of children we're on our way back home now the guards aren't having it they tell them to get up a, uh, get up against the wall John's about to jump down and uh, intervene, but then Lois uses her martial arts skills to knock out one guard, grab his gun, and club the other guard upside the head with it. And that is when Lois tells Borana to go home, and she will have to take it from here. And Borana says, but you'll be all alone. And up above, on the rooftops, John says to himself, Um, actually Lois says, I'm good at this kind of thing. I don't need backup. And John says out loud, maybe mom, but if you do, you got me. And that is the end of Lois's side of the story so far. Um, the, (laughs) the only real criticism I have with this issue is the cover gives away the spoiler. It spoils the ending. Um, it's, it's, it's an almost, picture-perfect match for what happens on the last splash page Superman is unconscious at the feet of Lorzod on the cover he's being held up mostly unconscious by the neck by Lorzod and that was kind of my my criticism of like issue two of this book it's the one where Doomsday gets reintroduced in the series with issue two or or whatever this actually hang on it's not issue two because it picked up the legacy numbering with um with issue 597 and there we have doomsday actually on the cover um and if once you have that you know what's going to happen in the end here is the same um i would have gone If it was me i would have gone with superman fighting the eradicator again or something or just facing the house of zod overall and seeing lore as maybe like in silhouette or something not giving it away that that it's general zod's son um and again i don't have that's not a criticism of this issue in general um i think once young justice the animated series i think by this point uh, Zod and his family had been reintroduced in that series um, and I think their appearance there was influenced by by the show Krypton then I think it was inevitable that we were going to get this version of Lore Zod in the comics. Again, I wish we could have Chris Kent back it's probably not meant to be so I'm 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 just okay with that, but it's it's just too bad, is all. So that is it for Action Comics number nine ninety six. I am I am enjoying this story arc so far. It's it's not my favorite. Um, my favorite are the ones that uh, deal with uh, Clark and Lois taking care of more down to earth things. But if you're gonna have Superman dealing with a big cosmic Kind of crisis and you have a writer who at this point in their career is having Superman deal with more emotional things, having that crisis tie in to Superman's past and having it deal with his personal emotional conflict, I think that's a really smart way to go. So I'm going to take another interstitial and when I come back, we're going to do an overview of Doomsday Clock number three. Stay tuned. Okay, Doomsday Clock number three is cover dated January 24th, 2018. It is written by Jeff Johns with illustrations by Gary Frank, colors by Brad Anderson, and letters by Rob Lee. Amy Brockway Metcalf does the back matter design. Gary Frank and Brad Anderson do both the main cover and the variant cover. Um, the main cover is of a bottle of Victory Gin thawing to the floor and exploding. Um, I do not get this reference. I am sure it has something to do with Dooms- with uh, with Watchmen. Again, I am not a fan of the original Watchmen. I'm not a fan of Alan Moore's work in general. Um, I've said often I like how, metaphorically, how Alan Moore speaks. I just hate what he says often. Uh, I, I think he has a really fascinating writing style. I just don't care for the subject matter that he writes because it usually involves some kind of misogyny or violence towards women. Not in not misogyny on Moore's part, but displays of misogyny by characters in the books. And I respect the fact that Moore has turned around and said that that kind of thing does not hold up, but it's just hard for me to read. You know, I respect him for calling, for acknowledging that, but I just don't like to read that kind of stuff. Um, the variant is of Batman sitting in the Batcave at a table reading the original Rorschach's journal. And I was right. The, he, uh, I feel dumb because I just reread this issue earlier today and I missed this. But the bottle of Victory Gin falling to the floor and exploding is a reference to the original Watchmen. Um, to the scene when Ozymandias showed up at uh, the comedian's apartment while the comedian was drinking... Beat him up real good and tossed him out a window. And we get a really cool series of panels as the, as the comedian falls to the city street below, but then he is, he is snatched away. And, and instead of hitting a, the pavement, he hits the ocean instead. And I'm guessing his fall was slowed. Uh, otherwise, he would have also broken all the bones in his body. Um, he, he he goes down several feet under the water. He swims back up and um, he finds Dr. Manhattan waiting for him. So the implication then is that Dr. Manhattan snatched him out of both time and space at the moment of his death. Which is how he was able to show up at Lex Luthor's office to attack both Lex and Ozymandias. Lex has been shot by the Comedian. The Comedian and Ozymandias fight because uh, the Comedian wants revenge for Ozymandias killing him in Watchmen. Uh, This time, however, it is Comedian that throws Ozymandias out of the window. Ozymandias uses his great intellect and athletic skill to slow his fall, but still does land unconscious. On a limousine far below after bouncing from rooftop to rooftop and, um, um, like skylight to, to window washers platform through a awning and onto a limo where he is injured, but not dead in the Bat cave. Uh, Batman is talking to the new, um, Rorschach, who gives Batman the original Rorschach's journal. And here we get to, up until Superman's appearance in issue seven, I believe, my favorite part of Doomsday Clock. And that would be the mime and the marionette. And as I've stated before, following the theme of Watchmen, the mime and marionette are based on original Charlton characters. They are based on Captain Adam Foe's Punch and Julie. Who were who were like puppet themed criminals? Um, I I think the Mime and the Marionette. They are terrible people, but they are absolutely fascinating. Uh, they were left behind by Ozamandius and Rorschach when they went to go search seek out Lex and Batman. After arriving in the main DC universe, they have slipped their cuffs and have left the the Owl ship that. They crossed from the Watchman universe to the main DC universe. In, um, they are in an old abandoned carnival, and just outside of Gotham. And they have decided to go see the sights. Back in the Batcave, Batman says he's going to read the journal for a while. He tells uh, Rorschach to go take a shower and rest. Now we go from there to a and I, I'm. Again, as I've said before, I'm not going into a tremendous amount of detail in Doomsday Clock until we get the Superman's appearance. But I am touching on the things that are important to know. Um, last issue we learned about the Superman theory, uh, which has been proposed that the United States government is actually responsible for the creation of the vast majority of its superhumans. Now, unlike most major miniseries, that run through the DC uh, continuity, this book was entirely self-contained. It takes place in continuity, as we'll see, but the events that take place in it up until the last issue don't really spell out until the rest of the DC universe. So the, the Superman theory is not mentioned in any other books that were coming out at this time. I don't think it ever comes up again. I'm sure Johns would probably like to do something with it. It's not an, it's not a bad idea. It's very interesting. We learned last issue that Metamorpho and Man-Bat were were results of of the Superman project, I guess it's called. Um it's implied that Firestorm is a result of it as well. And way back in the DC Rebirth one-shot we saw an elderly Johnny Thunder in the um, in a senior citizen's home, just looking sad and expecting the return of members of the legions of superheroes and all kinds of interesting stuff. This is where that finally ties in. Um, so far, it doesn't affect him directly, but what... This scene, he, he's standing in kind of the common area of the nursing home, standing out the window, waiting for his family to come see him. They have not shown up for what's implied the eighteenth time in a row. But the other residents of the nursing home are arguing about the TV. Someone watched the news coverage of the Superman project or the Superman theory, and others want to watch a movie by now deceased actor Carver Coleman in his role as nathaniel dusk now it's interesting because nathaniel dusk actually was a character that was published by dc i believe in the late 80s when they were doing a lot of books that didn't take place in continuity like the electric warrior and Tailgunner joe and things like that nathaniel dusk was a was a character published by dc comics in a a series of not did not take place in the main dc universe and what's more interesting then the movie that that we're watching is a couple things. One, the screenplay of the movie is by John Law. Now, if you are a fan of uh, All-Star Squadron from the early 80s, you might remember John Law as the Tarantula, who had one of the coolest early 80s costumes. It was very much a not World War II looking costume. It was this very it was this brown and black spidery costume with the kind of cowl that where the hair sticks out the top and he had these really cool fold down swashbuckler boots and this like a web gun and i think the joke gets made once per issue that tarantula is in that he should have called something should have called himself something else because tarantulas actually don't actually spin webs um but still he was a cool looking character he is a writer um and we we hear more about him later on in the book. But uh, one of the things that's interesting is that one of the old ladies in the the nursing home says that Carver Coleman was a deviant when another of the residents switches to the Carver Coleman movie, and we'll find out more about that. Uh, so we go back to the Batcave Cave or to to Wayne Man Wayne Manor where. The young man who has adopted the identity of Rorschach takes a shower, and he's having, uh, he's having some very upsetting. Uh, he's having a PTSD moment. He he, am, he is, scrubbing at his scalp so much that he is actually making blood run down his face. Meanwhile, the mime and the marionette walk into a bar, and that is not set up for a bad joke. That is the mime and the marionette walking into a bar on joker turf a a bar controlled by a gang that is loyal to the joker and they take offense to these two characters walk in wearing clown makeup um a very large hairy muscular man with a joker tattoo on the back of his palm grabs the marionette and uh implies that he is going to hurt and possibly rape her with the marionette feigning looking very shocked. Now the mime, he appears to mime pointing a gun at the other guy, not like, you know, two fingers or one finger pointing up and, another, and your thumb pointed back like pew, pew, I'm, I'm shooting you with a gun, but actually like he has his hand around a pistol grip and his finger through the trigger guard with his finger on the trigger. And we talked about this previously, that when the mime and the marionette were broken out of prison by Rorschach, the mime went and got his gear. And we see him miming, getting a gun out of a safe. And the last issue, when they put on all their gear, we show him you know, putting what looks like putting a, a gun in a holster. And here he draws the quote unquote gun. And the big burly biker guy laughs at him, says, what are you going to do? And then the mime shoots him with his invisible gun. And when the light shifts, we kind of see the outline of the invisible gun. Uh, he pulls out a knife, an invisible knife, and throws it at another guy and hits him in the throat. The marionette, she says she's ready to play too. And she does this thing with this um, uh, garrot that appears between her palms. She slices off a guy's face. She slices off another guy's hand. There's a really disturbing shot of coming at the guy from the guy's point of view with her garot like leading the way and her eyes really big and her smile really big saying, you've got pretty eyes. Um, And that is absolutely disturbing. We see that they have killed everyone in the bar and they are going to go find the Joker. Now I have done some research and i cannot find a definitive answer about this which i think makes it all the more compelling is the mime a metahuman who can make like telekinetic weapons or does he have invisible weapons either one of those things is i think the invisible weapons thing is more plausible because i've from what i've researched like technology in the watchman universe because of ozamandius and his intellect and his companies Technology over there is more advanced. Um, and you know, keep in mind, it is now, I think, in the Watchmen universe, it's still, it's still supposed to be the the early 90s. Maybe. It's supposed to be 1992, yeah. Um, so it's possible that technology is even further along than it was in Watchmen. So I think it's more likely that he owns Invisible Weapons, but I think the idea of him being the only other metahuman in the watchman universe other than dr manhattan is interesting but probably not very likely so we cut uh, back to the elderly people going back and forth between the news coverage of the fallout of the superman theory where we see that several countries have started forcibly screening people for the metagene and going back and forth to the nathaniel dusk movie uh, we see where the young man who has taken on the identity of of Rorschach, was one of the people who saw the the psychic image of the alien that invaded New York and that he's traumatized by that. And Batman tells him, I found Dr. Manhattan. He's in a place called Arkham Asylum and I traced temporal anomalies to there. So that's where he has to be. So... Batman and Rorschach sneak into Arkham. Uh, There's a fun couple of panels where Batman pulls out his very small and compact grappling hook gun. And Rorschach pulls out the original Rorschach's grappling gun, which looks very large and clunky and very much like a super soaker with a spool of thread attached to it. He's like, "Huh," or he looks down at how primitive his looks in response. And Batman leads Rorschach to a cell tells him that Dr. Manhattan is in there. Rorschach walks to the back of the cell and Batman locks Rorschach in. He says, I'm sorry. I believe you mean well, but you are clearly mentally ill and you belong here. And he just leaves him in Arkham with no due process, (laughs) which is, um, I'm not a big enough Batman fan to say that's very Batman, but my, um, my uh, layman's uh, level understanding of Batman makes me think that that's very Batman. Now, we get some really interesting stuff in the back matter here, and part of this really shows how this, how what we're seeing, ties into the main DC universe so because we're we're getting um, a copy of an old gossip magazine from what looks probably like the 1950s or 1960s. And it talks about how Carver Coleman died. And Carver Coleman had spun this story about how he was the son of immigrants who, and he was raised on a farm and I, I think it says Kansas, which would be um, you know, very appropriate. But after he was murdered, a note was found in his study from a woman who said she was his real mother and was blackmailing him. And how Carver Coleman was bludgeoned to death with his own um, with his own uh, award statue, like a, like an Oscar award. He was bludgeoned to death with his with his award statue. And we also get about we also get a lot of interesting stuff about some another Hollywood star at the time named Frank Farr, who we find out has a daughter named Rita Rita Farr, a last woman. Um, and we get more references to John Law. Of course, who I've mentioned was the uh was the tarantula during World War II. And um, let's see, and there is a uh, and it talks about how when Frank Farr died, there was a war buddy of Frank Farr's named Randy Booth, who served with Sergeant Rock. So we are, are definitely tying the whole Nathaniel Dusk stuff firmly into the the main DC continuity. And I guess, again, it's interesting, but because we're not dealing directly with Superman, I don't want to go into a ton more detail about the book as of right now. um, It is a longer book, so it turns out that my overview of this longer book took about as much time as my in-depth coverage of the other two books that I did a deep dive on. But that's okay. It is, like I said, it is interesting. It is a good story. And I do find the mime and the marionette absolutely fascinating. And of course, Gary Art, Gary Frank's art is amazing as always. And that does it for our comic book coverage this episode, but that doesn't do it for the episode itself because after the final interstitial, I will be right back to wrap everything up. Don't go anywhere. And that does it for episode 83 of Truth, Justice, and Hope, a Superman podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you could give me a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could follow me on social media, you can do so on Instagram, Blue Sky, in the platform formerly known as Twitter by searching for Truth, Justice, and Hope. On Twitter and Blue Sky especially, you will find my synopses of post-Crisis Superman stories beginning with the Man of Steel miniseries in 1986. I'm currently up to the beginning of the Millennium crossover in January of 1988. Be sure to check that out. Um, if If you really like the show, if you would like to help support the show, and if you would like to get an absolute ton of bonus content for paid subscribers, you can do so over at patreon.com slash truth, justice, and hope. I have a, a long series of episodes dedicated to my favorite classic post-Crisis Superman stories from 1987, beginning with the Pocket Universe Superboy story, up to 1993 with Reign of the Superman. I have begun a real-time watch-through of Superman Returns, and I will get back to that just as soon as I have. A Weekend Where I Am Not Swamped, and I've also begun an overview of the long-haired Superman era, and I believe I'm still on November of 1993 right now. I just got to the issue where Superboy accepts the name Superboy, and the absolutely bonkers supervillain Bloodthirst was introduced. And again, you can check all of that out over at patreon.com slash truth, justice, and hope. Next week, my time is going to be in a little bit of a crunch, so I'm only going to have an opportunity to do two episodes for the show next week. I'll be talking about Action Comics number 997, and we will finally be getting back to new Superman in the Justice League of China with issue 20 of that series. I cannot wait to talk to you guys about it. But until then, remember, as always, to fight fear at every turn with an open mind and an open heart. Love you.